Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We've gone back and forth in the length of passage that we're covering at any given time. And uh, this morning we're just covering three verses. Verses 19 through 21. But first let me back up and say, remember what has come before this because Elijah and Elisha are now together. And so you've got to keep them straight. <laughs> so if, you're, if you've ever wondered how to remember who is who, Elijah comes first, and Elisha comes second, and if you can't remember that, it's in alphabetical order. So that's how I keep it straight. Maybe that'll be a help to you. Elijah, J comes before S. So Elijah and Elisha are in alphabetical order, and then they are in uh, chronological order that same way. Now, Elijah, we've spent a lot of time on already, but let's back up. Elijah is who we are reading about. And the passage just before this, Elisha has lamented, cried out to the Lord concerning the state of the Lord's people. That they have turned away from him, that they have rejected his word, that they have rejected his prophet, which is Elijah himself. And that they're even trying to kill him as they have killed all the rest of the prophets. And so he is not just mournful, but he is distraught at the bad fruit. There's just misery in his words and he is... He is overcome with a desire to see the Lord's people worship the Lord. But that's not what he's seeing. He's seeing that they're turned away from God and turned to the uh, worship of Baal and of other idols. And so, his judgment of what is going on, God confirms and God says, okay, I'm going to have you anoint three men. And those three men were a new king for Israel, a new king for one of the neighboring countries, and a new prophet. And that's what we see the start of in our passage this morning is Elisha, the new prophet. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? 
So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Elijah gives Elisha his calling in this passage. It's clear that Elisha was not expecting it, right? Elisha's just out plowing. Elijah walks by and takes off his coat. All right, bud. What do you think that means? It's clear that Elisha understands it means something, right? What does it mean? It means that he is going to wear the same mantle. And we, we still have that, that phrase, taking up the mantle, comes from this passage and others. Uh, we'll, we'll see when he finally receives the mantle permanently, when Elijah is taken up into heaven. That's, let's see, that doesn't happen until 2 Kings, right? Yeah. Well, I guess we're going to have to do 2 Kings after 1 Kings. So, taking up the mantle means taking up the work. It means taking up the responsibility. It means being in the same role. Right? It means having the same job. It means being the replacement for Elijah. So, Elijah comes and he tosses his mantle onto Elisha, and Elisha understands, okay, all right, I guess that changes everything, right? That changes everything. Now, who wants Elijah's mantle? That's the question. And the answer is, nobody. Nobody wants to be in Elijah's spot. And the, the main reason why nobody wants to be in Elijah's spot is that people are trying to kill you if you're Elijah. So you don't want to have Elijah's role because you don't want the queen and the army and the king and a lot of the people mad enough at you that they wish you were dead and that they're actually trying to kill you. So this is the choice. You can be a very wealthy, self-sufficient, 
private citizen that doesn't have to worry about the danger of the queen trying to kill you. Or you can have the mantle of Elijah and speak God's word to God's people. Which do you want? It's a pretty unique calling. There's only one mantle. Only one guy gets it. And most people can just go, glad I don't have to worry about that, right? Except if you do. Because Elisha was just the son of a wealthy man. You don't have 12 yoke of oxen out plowing unless you got a big field. Right? And you don't have 12 yoke of oxen and all of the tools and implements that you need to go with those oxen unless you have a lot of money. Between the 12 pairs of oxen and the obvious size of the field, Elisha wasn't hurting. And Elisha wasn't expecting it any more than probably most of us would be today. But that calling, that calling to speak God's words, it's a dangerous calling. It's a dangerous calling because there has never been a time when people were speaking God's words that it didn't make other people angry. There has never been a time. If you have read the Bible and you have paid attention, you have seen that this is the case. Ever since Adam sinned, the people have been split into two groups. Those who love to hear God's words and those who hate to hear God's words. And so those who are called to speak God's words, they always know that there's that other group that doesn't want to hear. And in the time of Elijah, that group is huge. It's the vast majority. God has to tell Elijah that there's 7,000 people somewhere that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, that haven't kissed the idol, that are faithful to him that want to hear his words, that need God's words continuing to be spoken, that need, <coughs> excuse me, that need God's judgment on sin being proclaimed, that need God's warning. Don't worship Baal. Because if Elijah stops, how many of those 7,000 remain faithful? They're not off on their own entirely, right? What happens 
when the Word of God goes silent? Well, one of the things that happens is that it is God's judgment in that fewer people hear, in that fewer people repent, in that fewer people believe. And so here, it is a dangerous calling to speak God's words. To be a prophet of the living God. But it's a glorious, wonderful calling. Because it is what God uses to draw His people out of sin out of darkness, into newness of life, and into the light of His kingdom and eternal life. I'm not making it up. I'm not reading into the text. How will they hear unless somebody tells them? How will anybody tell them unless somebody is chosen, sent, called to this work of proclaiming God's Word? If that doesn't happen, God's church ends. That is how God has chosen for His church to continue down through the ages. That The Gospel message is proclaimed. Not just lived out, in obedience in our lives, but proclaimed with words. Those two things can't ever be separated. The people, those 7,000, they weren't called to do the proclaiming, right? They weren't set apart as the prophet. Elijah was, and then Elisha. They lived it out. How? By worshiping God instead of worshiping Baal. And that is a beautiful, beautiful testimony. That is shining the light into the world. But why would they start doing that in the first place? The only reason they would do that in the first place is because they have been called, they have been commanded, they have been told, don't worship Baal, don't worship false gods, don't kiss the idol, don't make sacrifices to the demons, but rather worship the one true God. Serve Him alone. Give Him all that you are and all that you have. And He will bless you. And He will save you. He will be a God to you and to your children after you. The promises of God are proclaimed and the people of God hear and rejoice. And so it's a glorious, glorious calling to be given the job, tell the world, tell the people of God, call them to repentance, call them to faith, call them to this new life in Christ Jesus. You can't ask for a better calling. but you can certainly find easier ones. You can certainly find callings that are less dangerous. You can certainly say, anything but that, God. 
I'm willing to give you my whole life as long as you don't give me that calling. When I was a kid, I used to listen to this cassette. You know how you don't necessarily know where everything that you have comes from? You just sort of collect it. This is one of those things. I remember several records that I used to listen to when I was young and, and also an audio cassette. I have no idea where they came from. My parents, I'm sure, have no idea either. But one of them had a song on it. And uh, the song was, Please Don't Send Me to Africa. I know the two. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. What, what is that song? It was a comedian. And what was he joking about? He, he was joking about this very thing. There's certain, there's certain callings that I don't want. And in particular, the calling of being a missionary in another country, in Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. I'm just a man, not a Tarzan. Don't like lions, gorillas, or snakes. I'll serve you here in suburbia in my comfortable middle-class life. But please don't send me to the ends of the earth where the natives are restless at night. Why? Why? I mean, you, I'm not the only one that that resonates with, right? So why? Why don't you want to get sent to the jungles of Africa or South America or wherever they got jungles left. It's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be dangerous. It's going to be painful. It's going to be lonely. Elijah was all of those things. That's the calling that he, when he takes his cloak and he puts that cloak, he takes that mantle and he puts it on Elijah, he's handing him all of that too. And not only that, not only the danger, the discomfort, the pain, the sorrow, what Paul calls not only that, but I also have the weight of all the churches on me all the time. Not only that, but then you also have the special little kicker at the end that God will hold you to a higher standard. Now it's not just a dangerous calling because of people trying to kill you. Now it's a dangerous calling because God will judge you more strictly if you are a teacher of God's people. That's another scary thought too, isn't it? Now all of a sudden, my actions matter more. Now all of a sudden, my behavior, whether I'm a hypocrite or not, carries a higher meaning and a bigger weight. Now all of a sudden, I don't just have to worry about whether I'm a Christian. 
Now all of a sudden I have to worry about whether I am building with good materials or not. Whether my works are going to be made of gold and silver and precious jewels or whether it's going to be hay and stubble that will be burned up. And so here's the thing. The calling that Elisha receives here when Elijah throws his mantle on him, it is a dangerous calling. It's a lonely calling. But it is a glorious calling to be set apart to speak God's word to God's people is a beautiful, beautiful thing. There's only two things that will make you think that getting sent to the jungles of Africa is a beautiful thing. It's if you love God and you love His people. The bride of Jesus Christ, the church. If you love God and you love the church, then all of a sudden, it totally changes your perspective on whether it's a good thing to be called to gospel ministry. It's glorious to be called to speak God's words and the reason that it's glorious is not because it allows you to stand up in front of people and talk. The reason that it's glorious is not because it makes you important and gets to put, you get to be up on a pedestal. It's not because the pay is great. It's not because of you or any benefit to you. It's because to speak God's words means you're speaking God's words. And God's words are beautiful. God's words are wonderful. If you read through the Psalms, you come to, you come to Psalms like Psalm 19 or Psalm 119 and many, many others, starting with Psalm 1. And what you see is the theme of God's Word being good. You see the theme that the people of God love to hear His Word. And and the reason they love to hear His Word is because it feeds them. They, They love to hear His Word because it's sweet like honey to the soul. They they love to hear God's word because it is accurate and true and it tells them who God is and who they are. And it gives them a light for for the path that is so dark and convoluted and confusing and full of tripping hazards. And we need a light for our path. God's word is a light for our path. So that we can see where our feet are going. So that we can walk without tripping. 
How can anybody look at the calling of proclaiming God's Word to His people and not think, oh, I get to speak God's Word. That's that's marvelous. That's wonderful. Because God's Word is so beautiful. God's Word is so perfectly true. Every man is a liar, but God's Word, there's not a part of it that's wrong. There's not a part of it that's dishonest. There's not a single bit of it that won't come to pass. I can speak it with utter confidence and know that it is perfectly true. If God says it's going to happen, it is going to happen. Is there anything else that you can speak that way about? You go back and you try to teach history. You read two history books. And throw your hands up in the air. Like Pilate, what is truth? What is truth? Try teaching physics. Oh man, you know they tell you that the atom is the smallest thing, right? That's what atoms are, they're the thing that everything else is made of. And then you find out actually, you know, there's... Atoms are made up of protons and neutrons and they each have an equal weight and then there's electrons that weigh nothing and they're flying around the outside. Okay, so actually everything's made of protons and neutrons and electrons, I suppose. Then you find out that actually, no, they're made of quarks. The the proton itself, I, I don't know. I'm not a physicist. I do know that if you ask the leading physicists who study these things, they will tell you that the proton alone is the most marvelous, incomprehensible thing. So complex that we're only beginning to maybe think we understand it a little bit. And so... You teach fourth graders that atoms, things are made up of atoms, right? You teach college students that they're made up of quarks, maybe. And charms. Fun stuff, huh? It is beautiful. It is glorious. God's creation is truly marvelous and all of it points back to Him. And we get as teachers to proclaim God's truth such as we understand it from His creation, yes. And we get as teachers to go back and to look at history, right? And and to say, God was at work. There's a reason that there's that old, you know, saying it's His story. But what actually happened back then? It's hard to know, isn't it? And why? Well, when you get to proclaim God's Word, His revealed holy truth, written down by men, inspired by the Holy Spirit, of which He says not one jot or tittle, the the little dot above the I or the cross of the T, okay? Not one of those will be lost from His Word. And so you, you speak what this says, 
and you know without a shadow of a doubt it's right. It's right. It's true. And it's not just true, it's good. It's good. God's Word is good. It leads to life. It leads to eternal life. God's words are holy. There's many things that in, in, the, in the Bible that are hard. Hard some to understand, some hard for us to swallow. But we know that they are good. There is nothing unholy. There is nothing impure in here. There is nothing in here that we need to be ashamed of that God has said or done. In fact, He has told us that we must not be ashamed of His words or His truth or His Son who reveals God and His character in the flesh. And so to proclaim God's Word is to proclaim Jesus Christ, the Word, made flesh. Manifest. God's words are good. Enlightening the eyes. You know, if if you wanted to rewrite Psalm 119, just come up with some synonyms for God's word. All right? And then come up with all of the best, most positive words that you can come up with and just start mixing and matching. Right? God's promises are true. God's word is beautiful. God's statutes are holy. God's commands are wonderful. You just, you just play that game for 150 verses and you have rewritten Psalm 119. But it's in the Bible. It's not a game. It's not made up. It's all true. When God's Word says God's Word is beautiful, you know God's Word is beautiful. Why do you know that? Because God's Word is true and it says it. God isn't shy about proclaiming how wonderful His Word is. We can be quite shy about it. But why be shy? It is true. It is good. It is holy. It is beautiful. It is wonderful and marvelous. More marvelous for words, if possible, except it is words. And so, are you called to speak God's words to God's people? I don't have a shadow of a doubt in my mind that some of you young men in here 
are called to be pastors, as we read of Timothy being set apart. Which of you is going to be called to be a pastor? You don't know, do you? Elisha didn't know. Elijah didn't know until God said, now anoint Elisha, right? But don't be, don't be scared of it. Yes, it's a fearful calling. It's a dangerous calling. But it's a marvelous, glorious calling. Sometimes men dream of the call to battle, right? Like, oh, if only there was just that clarity of, I am now required to defend my country or my home or my family or my life, right? And and everything else, all of the shades of gray disappear and this is my work. I, I am called to do it now. And it's clear. And yeah, it's dangerous. And yeah, I might die doing it, but it's worth it. Right? Now, now, some of you women might be thinking, what is wrong with men? Ken Patrick sent me a letter while I was out in Gettysburg with Tate's class and several other classes. And... It's the final letter from a soldier who is fighting in the Union Army during the Civil War back to his wife. And one of the things that he talks about in there is the certainty that he is doing what he's supposed to do, although he does not want to die. And he does not want his son to grow up an orphan, a fatherless child, like he himself grew up without his father. But he begs his wife to understand this is what he is supposed to be doing and he has no doubt about it. I didn't read it for a couple of weeks because I didn't want to cry. He, he warned me that I would cry. When, uh, when a man is called to the work of ministry, it is a dangerous calling. You are held to a higher standard, and not just by men, but by God himself. But what do you get to do? You get to preach God's word. And you get to preach to God's people. And you get to call the world to repentance. You get to see people repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Pastors are not the only ones that get to do that and get to see that. All of you have God's word and you're to hide it in your heart and you are to speak it to others 
without shame. But this special calling that Elisha receives to be a prophet, to be a forth teller of God's word, a speaker for God himself, this is, this is special. And one of the reasons that it's special is because you love God's people as a Christian. And you want to see them grow. You want to see them strengthened. You want to see them protected. You want to see them coming to life. Even when they are as rebellious as the Israelites were under Ahab, you don't want them to be left without God's word. You want them to hear it because you want them to change because you love God's people. You remember when Moses begged God, no, don't kill them all. Don't start over with me. Don't make me a great nation. Save your people. Kill me instead. Why? It's because he loved God's people. And because he loved God and he wanted God's name to be glorified. And so he says, no God, the whole world will think you are less powerful than you truly are if you do that. It may be just. It may be holy. It may be righteous. But your name won't be magnified like it should be if you do that. I love you too much, God, for that to happen. I love you too much to see your church turning away from you without you sending forth men to call her to repentance. Don't go silent. Protect your church. It's a glorious, glorious calling. To be given that work of protecting the church. And protecting from what? Well, the temptations, obviously, of Baal in the context of Elisha, right? But protecting from what? The 450 false prophets of Baal, the false shepherds who say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. And how many churches today have pastors that are proclaiming that everything is fine? Peace. Don't worry. Those are the men that the pastor is called to protect God's people from. Elisha is given that job. Elisha is given that mantle of responsibility. Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. And what did he do? Immediately, he leaves the oxen, quits farming, and he runs after Elijah, Elijah just walks by and does it. You know, 
Wait a minute. Get these reins off. Okay. He runs after him and he says, please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And Elijah says, go back again, for what have I done to you? Elijah's response can be hard, perhaps, to understand. But what's not hard to understand is that Elisha is not turning away from the work, is he? Elisha is not hesitant. He is ready to follow after Elijah. He goes back. He takes the pair of oxen. He sacrifices them. And how does he cook the oxen? He, go ahead, you can answer. He boils their flesh. Yep, that's the cooking part. But we would turn on the oven, right? The stovetop, I guess, if you're going to boil it. What does he do? What did they cook on then? Fire. You have to have something to make a fire, right? There's no natural gas that you can just turn the dial. No electric stovetop. So he makes a fire. What does he make the fire of? He makes the fire out of the rest of the tools that go along with plowing with an ox team. You've got the yoke, the big piece of wood that goes between them that has to be strong enough to hold two oxen together and to be hooked to a plow without breaking while two oxen pull. It's a big hunk of wood, isn't it? It's got to be strong. And they have to be made. He chops it up, burns it. What does that tell you? He's done farming, isn't he? No more oxen. No more plow. No more yoke. He's done. He's turned his back on it. And not not sadly, he has a party. He sacrifices to God. They celebrate. This is a glorious calling. And then what does he do? He goes and follows Elijah, and he's his servant. He serves him. He ministers to him. In 2 Kings 3, it's described as that guy who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. He becomes nothing. He becomes nothing. That's the glorious calling, to become nothing. To serve, to serve is a glorious, glorious calling. And so I have spoken of 
the joys, the wonder, the gloriousness of being called to be a pastor, yes. In part because I want you young men to consider what is your calling? Am I called to be a pastor? Is that what God has for me? And if so, to begin preparing for it. But what of all the rest of us? All the rest of us who can... What, have I, do I not have the chance to, ha- to have that glorious calling? Do, do, you know, don't I get any bit of it? Here's what I would say. Two things. One, some of you are called to be mothers. And is there a better word to describe motherhood than pouring water on the hands of somebody else? Serving. It never stops, does it? To be poured out in service, to become nothing for the sake of somebody else. That's motherhood, isn't it? And so, it's a glorious calling. It's a glorious calling to be a mother. And you know what else you get to do when you're a mother? Speak God's Word to God's people. In fact, you don't just get to, you also have to. God's chosen race, His royal priesthood, they're in your home. And you are to teach them God's words. You are to train them to love Him. So, If practically everything that I said about pastors applies to mothers, and it does, it probably mostly applies to a lot of callings, doesn't it? But there is something special about those two callings. When God calls, Elisha obeys. When God calls you, will you obey? God always has the right to give you a special and sudden, unexpected calling. At any moment, you might be called upon to do something that you had no idea was coming. And I, got, I was talking about that a little bit with that battle. With that, now I, am, now I am called upon. You know. Countrymen, now is the moment. Step up. 
That moment comes. Are you ready? Elijah's, Elisha's life is changed in an instant. And he gives up everything he knew and had. All of the comforts of home. All of the security of money, of being wealthy. All of the servants that he must have had. And instead he is a servant. And he responds by having a party. He sacrifices to the Lord and he feeds everybody the meat. They celebrate with steak. Pot roast. Right? Why? Because it's wonderful. Because it's marvelous. To be called to be a servant. So here's the calling. When God calls, obey joyfully. Give up whatever it takes, whatever it is that's required. And I wanted to expand your, your understanding, your knowledge of what that could look like because it's so easy for us to think, well, God hasn't called me to anything special. All I have to do is sit here and be miserable. All I have to do is Suffer, and there's nothing glorious about it. I'm just, I'm just a servant. That's what Elisha was given to do. Will you respond with joy when God suddenly changes your life? Can God suddenly change your life? Yeah, He can. He can take away someone you love. He can give you a permanent disability or injury or someone you love. And what happens at that moment, your calling changes, doesn't it? All of a sudden, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing anymore. Elisha's life changes. And he's good with that. Will you be good with it?